Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 40. Consider, as Adath Ilani might consider it, the problem of Adath Ilani cast into a strange new universe, who must trade with the aliens found there. It is, in fact, quite a common trope in Dath Ilani science fiction, but it wouldn't particularly occur to Keltham to classify this situation as that trope. Cheliax is way too legible. They have a currency of gold pieces that they cheerfully translated for him into unskilled labour years. Golarian would need to be a lot weirder before it was good trade with aliens, ache a science fiction. The aliens, one may suppose, have a biological evolutionary setup similar enough to Dath Elans that they have epidemics caused by viruses and bacteria and parasites. Suppose the aliens don't know about viruses and bacteria and parasites, or vaccines or antibiotics or filtering masks, or possibly even sterilization, nor about how one should use experiments to determine whether a disease is airborne or waterborne, or touch transmitted or transmitted through wastewater contamination, or is carried by smaller or larger animals. The Dath Ilani, then, know something which this alien civilization might find of great value. The alien civilization can perhaps pay for this knowledge with some alien means of payment. Perhaps the alien civilization, being non-human or just non-Dath Ilani, tries to be stingy about it, to lowball the Dathilani, to buy their knowledge, at a cost of, say, a pile of shiny metal or title to one island in the ocean. Depending on the exact backstory of how the aliens came to try this, and whether it was in some sense the fault of that whole civilization or just a part of it, even a non-Keltham Dathilani might well say, screw you, pay me. That, too, the Dathilani are taught. In Galarian terms, the difference between lawful good and lawful stupid. But then how high does the price need to be exactly for the Dathilani to agree to the trade? By what system do you determine an answer to that? The notion of a fair agreement, a fair trade, a fair division of gains from trade, a fair price, plays a central role in any civilization that relies on its citizens' conscious understanding of their activities. Dathilan teaches the law, mathematical structure, underpinning fairness very carefully and from childhood. After all, if lots of people ended up with widely different notions of what was fair, civilization would stop trading with itself. In turn, the notion of fair trade relies on understanding the notion of trade in the first place. Jelly chips, a staple of Dathilani lessons to young children, are small lumps of edible-flavoured gel. Jelly chips come in distinct appearances, colours, shapes and flavours. Almost always, everything with exactly the same appearance has exactly the same flavour. Ten jelly chips might mass as much as one peanut. They're meant to implement a burst of tasty flavour that's just enough to be present and pleasant. They're tiny so that children don't get end up getting all of their calories from economics lessons. To teach the notion of trade, you begin by passing out jelly chips to children and let them experiment a bit to find out which of their favourite flavours have which external appearance. Then ask the children to write down which flavours they like more or less than others. Compare the lists. Observe to the children that they tend to like different flavours more or best. There is, in fact, a jelly chip selection algorithm based on previously observed food preferences among the kids, which makes sure that this happens. 
observed to them that, by trading jelly chips with each other, they could all end up with more of the kind of jelly chips they want. Let them trade a bit, as they desire. So long as they haven't been introduced to any formal concepts of fairness to complain about, this part usually does not go too poorly, among Dathilani children. They'll find jelly chips that they have and don't want, and look for somebody else who wants those and has some they want and trade one for one. If you let them play longer, they'll start to notice triangular trades that no two children can complete, and do those too, but still usually one for one. When the first rush of trading has died down, introduce to the children the concept of a multi-agent optimal arrangement. An arrangement such that it's not possible to redistribute the jelly chips in any way that leaves all of the children better off simultaneously. Ask them if they think their current arrangement got there. Now the kids have a concept of a social goal to aim for, a way in which they can be collectively winning at trade or performing subpar, and the arguments will become a bit more heated, especially if you've sorted all the kids to have a certain sort of personality, and usually therefore all be boys, because sometimes different children learn different things, and some of those things are best learned by similar children altogether. It usually doesn't take long for one boy to start telling another that they need to make a trade, in order to get the classroom asterisk into what they figured as the optimal arrangement. Of course, the older kids immediately step in at this point and remind everyone that, by the definition of multi-agent optimality, you should never need to force somebody to trade in order to get to a jelly chip arrangement. That's better for everyone. The target state should be better for the person who's making the trade too. Asterisk. Not actually a room in the sense of being indoors. Children need to be exposed to outdoor light levels in childhood in order to not grow up nearsighted. The surface area required for children to spend enough of their day outdoors is currently the limiting factor on the urban density of the great city, called also central city and default. This is one of the places where public will and private incentives are in conflict, since there's a pressure towards ever greater urban density in the centre. But if this were permitted, soon it would be mostly childless people who could afford to live in civilization's dense centre. For that and other reasons, it's been decided that it's better to limit the great city's density and keep civilization more spread out. To find a solid expanse of skyscrapers, you'd need to visit a major city with few or no children per capita, like Big Quiet or Eratown. After this enlightenment, an adult watcher comes forth and argues to the younger children that the whole point of trading things is that different people put different values on the same goods. If you one like black jelly chips and have blue jelly chips, and you two have black jelly chips and like blue jelly chips, then you can both do better by trading jelly chips with each other. This, the watcher argues solemnly, is the point of trade, and the whole reason why people trade with each other because they get different enjoyments from owning the same things, so that they can both become better off by passing the same fixed goods back and forth between themselves. The younger children are asked if they first order believe that. None will say yes at that point. The most overeager ones will say no, but then be unable to explain why not. Most kids will give the brief baseline comeback that colloquially translates to I probably would have believed it if I wasn't pretty sure you were trolling me, though I haven't seen anything that I suspect is the real argument against it. A Dath Elani childhood tends to make one grow up suspicious of things that grown-ups say with great solemnity. Civilization considers this a desirable outcome, which is good because it sure is the outcome they're getting. Regardless of their answers, 
The children are then asked whether people who all got the same enjoyments from the same goods would never trade with each other, and so that pathway of learning continues. On a separate track through the lattice of knowledge, a new idea may now be introduced on those foundations, the notion of a fair trade between black jelly chips and blue jelly chips. It begins by showing the children a way to rearrange their understanding of jelly chip. Preferences, as a quantitative relation and not just an ordering, through the concept of indifferences, which state equalities of preference, not just, I like purple jelly chips more than black jelly chips, and black jelly chips more than blue jelly chips, but I am indifferent between having five purple jelly chips, or six black jelly chips, or eight blue jelly chips. But then, of course, you might be able to execute multi-agent beneficial trades that aren't one-to-one. -one. If someone is indifferent between having six black jelly chips and eight blue jelly chips, then trading seven blue jelly chips for six black jelly chips will leave them better off than before, right? A lot of children will say no at this point and try to find some reason why that couldn't possibly be valid, because they know how economics lessons work by this point in their lives. They expect that somebody's about to lead them down a pathway that takes them down to six black jelly chips and then five purple jelly chips, and so on, until they only have one jelly chip left. But you can, with a bit more work, convince them that it's totally valid to want six black jelly chips more than seven blue jelly chips, and valid to trade things according to your wants, and tell them that in fact this does not necessarily always expose them to a set of clever trades that take them down to one jelly chip which it will then be proven to them they must want to trade for nothing. That's not actually going to happen. You're thinking it's going to be the point of the economics lesson, but it's not. Adults actually trade seven hours of labour for six fancy shirts all the time without ending up with zero shirts, and this is isomorphic. The children are then asked if they think they can get to a more multi-agent optimal state by trading uneven numbers of jelly chips amongst themselves. The children approach this warily, or with a burst of initial enthusiasm that fades, after many children prove rather suspicious of attempts to get them to trade more jelly chips for less jelly chips. Dathilan having an average intelligence of 16 or 17, it doesn't take long for somebody to point out that, even if one person likes some jelly chips more than others, that's no reason for them to end up with less jelly chips. Other kids also like some jelly chips more than others. Why shouldn't they be the one to end up with less jelly chips and I be the one who ends up with more if that's how we're going to play it? Why, yes, Keltham was the first one to say it in those terms, in his own class when he was very young. Suppose that Keltham is indifferent between three black jelly chips and four blue jelly chips, and that Limia is indifferent between two blue jelly chips and three black jelly chips. Suppose they both start with twelve black and twelve blue jelly chips. Then for Keltham to trade his twelve blue jelly chips for ten black jelly chips from Limia would leave them both better off and for Limiar to trade his twelve black jelly chips for nine blue jelly chips from Keltham would leave them both better off, and for Keltham to trade his twelve blue jelly chips for Limiar's twelve black jelly chips would leave them both better off. All three of these are mutually beneficial trades, but which of them is fair, or fairest? If you're the sort who agrees to just any trade that's mutually beneficial, like Limiar in this classroom had been earlier arguing people ought to do, then you know what Keltham is going to do to you, that's right. Keltham is going to offer nine blue jelly chips for your twelve black jelly chips you're going to accept. Keltham is going to carry out the trade, and then Keltham is going to angrily throw another three blue jelly chips at you and yell that you're being stupid. If you step out and look at that problem from a wider angle, 
It's pretty much the same issue that holds between the Dathilani and the alien civilization, considering the price of medical knowledge. If the alien civilization offers some tiny lowball offer, like, say, a supply of food and water, in exchange for every last scrap of your knowledge and there's no other civilization around to trade with, you and they will both be better off if you accept, compared to if you don't. But if you accept offers like that one, food and water is the most you can expect to be offered, if the aliens are less lawful neutral than Keltham. Even if there's two alien factions around to trade with, you can't quite rely on them bidding against each other. What if they coordinate with each other instead? There's a noticeable amount for both of them to gain, if they both agree to offer you only food and water instead of a higher price. Another game is now introduced to the children, played with a single flavour of jelly chip. It is not, in Dathilan, called the ultimatum game, but the actual name they have for it is the final trade-offer game, which isn't all that different. One child gets a dial with settings from 0 to 12. Another child gets a button. The first child picks a setting on the dial and locks it in. The second child then chooses whether to press the button. If the second child presses the button, the first child gets as many jelly chips as the dial indicates. The second child gets jelly chips equal to 12 minus the number on the dial. If the second child doesn't press the button, they both get nothing. Which is to say, the first child proposes a division of a gain of 12 jelly chips where they get some part and the other child gets the rest. The second child can approve the division or refuse it and if they refuse, both get nothing. If you run this lesson on Dathilani children, virtually everyone offers a six. Six jelly chips split and everyone accepts it. At least that's what they do on round zero the initial round where they try things the simple way to verify their starting assumptions. Then they start experimenting. It's not so much that they're being selfish and trying to figure out what they can get away with. It's that they're figuring there must be some clever point to this game and you're not going to find it if you just offer six, six every time. Some kids try out accepting splits of seven, five. Other kids are like, okay then, and offer them seven, five splits which usually get rejected if, like, people are going to make a thing out of that, right? As some try offering compacts to trade seven, five splits for five, seven splits, but there's no guarantee that any two kids will be matched up again in the future. At this point, the older kids step in and say that the point of the game is drifting away from the reality it's intended to model, and everybody nods and waits for the next part. Of course there's a next part. There's been a weird game and no stunning insight about it has been presented yet. Had they've ever been to a lesson before? Older people aren't going to make you execute a weird, pointless procedure and then not have some stunning insight to offer you as payment. Kids would stop going to lessons if that bargain was often violated. Before the next part, though, the older child teaching asks what the kids think is probably the ideal or correct thing you're supposed to do if somebody offers you a seven. Five split, not as a game, but in real life. Keltham, of course, said to reject the offer. Some other kids agreed the offer should be rejected. Some claimed that you should accept it, but everyone should be angry at the person. And whoever went next with them should offer them seven, five. Lumiar claimed that you should always accept it, even if the other person offers eleven. One, because everyone would end up with fewer jelly chips if you rejected than if you accepted so rejecting the offer couldn't be multi-agent optimal. Keltham asked Limiar if he actually believed that. Limiar said no, but he was going to go on saying it anyways to annoy Keltham. The kids argue about it for a while and then the demonstration moves on. 
The next stage involves a complicated dynamic puzzle with two stations that requires two players working simultaneously to solve. After it's been solved, one player locks in a number on a zero, 12 dial, the other player may press a button, and the puzzle station spits out jelly chips thus divided. The gotcha is, the two-player puzzle game isn't always of equal difficulty for both players. Sometimes one of them needs to work a lot harder than the other. Now things start to heat up. There's an obvious notion that if one player worked harder than the other, they should get more jelly chips. But how much more? Can you quantify how hard the players are working and split the jelly chips in proportion to that? The game obviously seems to be pointing in the direction of quantifying how hard the players are working relative to each other, but there's no obvious way to do that. Somebody proposes that each player say, on a scale of 0 to 12, how hard they felt like they worked, and then the jelly chips should be divided in whatever ratio is nearest to that ratio. The solution relies on people being honest. This is perhaps less of a looming, unsolvable problem for Dath Ilani children than for adults in Galarion. Once the solution is produced and tried once, the older children congratulate the kids on having solved the first layer. On to the second layer. In the second layer, some children get handed sealed cards before each game, telling them whether to be honest about it or to try to grab a little more for themselves. Though remember, say the older children, that this is all only a game. We are trying to ask how civilization can be robust to bad people, not teach you to be bad people yourselves. The thing is, you see, that on scales much larger than this class, there really will be some bad people. And that means the child who sets the dial, or the child who presses the button, can't trust the other to be honest. Even if the other child's sealed card didn't say to be dishonest, the first child has no way of knowing that. Dishonest people really do complicate things, don't they? Uh, just the fact that they exist makes things harder on everyone else, because they don't know who the dishonest people are. But that's part of the difficulty of constructing an adult civilization, one that has to scale to numbers beyond two dozen or sixteen gross. The children start having to think harder at this point. There are kids playing hard on puzzle games and hearing estimates of the other players' labour effort that don't sound quite right, proposing splits afterwards and seeing those splits rejected and both getting nothing. Some of the kids start to get angry at each other, others are trying to come up with a brilliant general solution, and if they're wise, they know they haven't found one. Some children are not so wise, but they can't get anyone else to go along with their brilliant general solution. Keltham plays through with as much cold and steely determination as a seven-year-old can muster, offering exactly what he thinks is fair, rejecting anything he thinks is less than fair. Feeling awful when the other kid yells at him that he was being honest, but not swerving from his course. He can trust himself, he cannot trust the other. When his card tells him to be dishonest, Keltham gives ridiculously huge estimates for his own labour and hopes the other child is wise enough to know that Keltham is, must be, lying. Sometimes he's told to be dishonest and he has to pick the split himself and then he gives a huge estimate and pretends he believed the other kid's huge estimate. Sometimes the other kid doesn't catch on in time and then Keltham has to offer an unfair split or tap out of the game and metagame entirely which feels like failing even more. Sometimes the unfair split gets rejected and sometimes it gets accepted. Which is worse? Keltham sets aside all his unearned chips to redistribute after the lesson ends. It's a good thing this is only a game because living life like this would be awful. Lessons end for the day. It is sometimes good to let children dwell for a time on problems that don't have known solutions yet.
or realise how awful life can become when not everyone has deduced the governing law. And children actually do better, Dathilan has found, if you try having them play this elaborate game without having previously introduced the concept of a multi-agent optimal boundary, or the notion of the ultimatum game, or the question of fair trades between unequal numbers of jelly chips. Then they just play and negotiate, without a concept that they are failing to reach multi-agent optimality, or the notion that children who disagree with them are refusing to make mutually beneficial trades, or that the offered trade was unfair. The children are less distracted by ideas they don't know how to operate, goals they don't know how to succeed at, and ways to argue that people who disagree with them are doing some particular thing objectively incorrectly. There is a valley of competence as a function of knowledge in this case, where knowing just a little can hurt you. When the children return the next day, the older children tell them the correct solution to the original ultimatum game. It goes like this. When somebody offers you a 7-5 split instead of the 6, six split that would be fair, you should accept their offer with slightly less than 6-7 probability, their expected value from offering you 7. 5, in this case, is 7 asterisk, slightly less than 6-7, or slightly less than 6. This ensures they can't do any better by offering you an unfair split, but neither do you try to destroy all their expected value in retaliation. It could be an honest mistake, especially if the real situation is any more complicated than the original ultimatum game. If they offer you 8-4 except with probability slightly more less than 6 eighths, so they do even worse in their own expectation by offering you 8-4 than 7-5. It's not about retaliating harder. The harder they hit you with an unfair price, that point gets hammered in pretty hard to the kids. A watcher steps in to repeat it. This setup isn't about retaliation. It's about what both sides have to do. To turn the problem of dividing the gains into a matter of fairness. To create the incentive setup whereby both sides don't expect to do any better by distorting their own estimate of what is fair. They play the two station video games again. There's less anger and shouting this time. Sometimes somebody rolls a continuous die and then rejects somebody's offer, but whoever gets rejected knows that they're not being punished. Everybody is just following the algorithm. Your notion of fairness didn't match their notion of fairness, and they did what the algorithm says to do in that case. But they know you didn't mean anything by it, because they know you know they're following the algorithm, so they know, you know, you don't have any incentive to distort your own estimate of what's fair. So they know you weren't trying to get away with anything. And you know they know that. And you know they're not trying to punish you. You can already foresee the part where you're going to be asked to play this game for longer, until fewer offers get rejected, as people learn to converge on a shared idea of what is fair. Sometimes you offer the other kid an extra jelly chip, when you're not sure yourself, to make sure they don't reject you. Sometimes they accept your offer, and then toss a jelly chip back to you, because they think you offered more than was fair. It's not how the game would be played between Dath Elan and true aliens, but it's often how the game is played in real life. In Dath Elan, that is. After that came the part where Keltham's learning group was introduced to their first sophisticated trading game, with tokens that produced varying quantities of jelly chips, but only when held in proximity to other tokens, and large enough groups of tokens could produce more tokens. Despite their best efforts, and the lesson they'd just learned, and, since they were still young boys, after a lot of shouting beyond a certain point, the nascent market had soon shut down almost entirely over refused trades, caused by disagreements about what was fair. During the game's post-mortem, it was eventually figured out, 
with some nudging and hinting from the supervising older children, that children with rarer tokens had tended to think that the weight of a token's value for its even division ought to be determined by that token's scarcity. Children with tokens that produced lots of jelly chips, even if they required some other tokens to be nearby to work, tended to think that direct jelly chip production was the obvious starting anchor for weighing economic value. Children with tokens that produced other tokens argued themselves to have the only goods that mattered in the long run and that you'd need a lot of lesser tokens to trade fairly for one of those. This begins the pathway of learning that leads to market prices, the other way of setting prices, in which larger civilization has a collective interest in seller prices ending up close to the marginal cost of production so that as many trades as possible occur. Children who master the complications here have officially passed financial literacy layer too and can have their own investment accounts asterisk, which was the main reason Keltham was going through this whole lesson sequence at age seven instead of age eight. Asterisk. Having an investment account in Dath, Elan is the equivalent of having a bank account in other places, rather than a mark of greater financial maturity than that. Dath Elan doesn't particularly use as a store of value currency-denominated packaged bank debt with fixed returns. Value is stored mostly in equities. When you write a cheque against your investment account, divisible fractions of equity are automatically sold out of it in some medium of exchange and automatically reinvested in the receiver's account according to the simple auto-selling and auto-buying algorithms on both sides. If you want to pay for less volatility in your assets, you buy insurance on the equity so that somebody agrees to buy the asset from you if it drops below 80% of its original purchase price, and the price of insurance. Like that is a risk signal. When it comes to selling knowledge to aliens, to be clear, financial literacy layer 2 is not going to get you there. If the answer across every plausible premise was trivial and similar, that trope wouldn't be such a staple of Dathilani economic fiction. Thankfully, Galarian is not nearly weird enough for Cheliacs to be composed of aliens in the relevant sense. The Chelish have money and will tell you how many unskilled labour hours it corresponds to. The most you have to worry about is that somebody gave them a dishonesty card, which does mean you have to do your own calculations about what's fair and not just ask them. When you are not dealing with alien aliens, when setting prices with those aliens is not the point of the story, a normal Dathilani would consider the solution obvious. There comes a saturation point beyond which individuals cannot realistically use any more money to become happier themselves, for usual reasons of just noticeable differences being a mostly constant fraction of how much you already have, which implies utility roughly logarithmic in wealth. If the aliens offer to pay you that much, Asking them to cough up more would mean that a number of poorer aliens would all have to give up chunks of utility that loom larger for them, so that you could get much smaller amounts of utility. And even if that's fair, it isn't good. If the aliens offer an ultimatum for less, turn them down with very high probability. They're trying to give you far less than you're worth. Would civilization offer less than a billion labour hours to an alien bearing knowledge of how to eliminate whole swathes of diseases, hitting large sections of the population? No. Of course, in a normal Dathilani economic fiction isekai story, the entire world you end up in is not insane in every part. There may be one insane point of departure with some insane consequences, lawfully extrapolated, but the author is not going to throw an entire insane world at you. It wouldn't be credible. 
A normal Dathilani, thrown into another world, does not come in expecting to need enough money to make lots and lots of important investments that the natives haven't made because the natives are insane. They're expecting to find an alien efficiency of no simple ways to make everyone collectively much wealthier, not the howling absence of that efficiency. Keltham wasn't expecting Golarian either. He did, however, catch on in short order to what he currently thinks is the magnitude of the problem. It is possible he will need a lot of money to solve it. Shav, you've actually got to negotiate with very human-like aliens. You need financial literacy layer 5. Or at least Keltham hopes that's what he needs, because that's what he has. This gives him access to a spotlighted permutation-based method for determining the fair contribution of one actor to a multi-agent process. It's not spotlighted nearly as hard as, say, the probability axioms or validity, but it's pretty much the only spotlighted method for that kind of fairness, and civilization is somewhat hopeful that aliens will use it too. The permutation-based method says to consider how much marginal added value an agent produces by being added to a collection of other agents when considering every possible order in which to add all agents into the evaluation. If, for example, two people are both needed to complete a task worth 10 jelly chips and it can't be completed at all without both of them, then there's two possible permutations. Permutation 1, Alice. Alice alone receives zero jelly chips. Her marginal value added to the empty set is zero. Alice plus Bohob. After adding Bohob, the payoff is 10 jelly chips. Bohob's marginal product added to Alice is 10. Permutation 2, Bohob zero jelly chips. Bohob plus Alice 10 jelly chips. Averaging the marginal products together across all permutations, the method says that Alice and Bohob both receive five jelly chips. Yes, this is a very simple answer to be produced by all that logic, but the point is that it generalizes. Applied directly to the situation with Chelyaks, the method says roughly that Keltham should receive an amount proportional to how much marginal product he adds, on average, to all possible ordered subsets of Chelyaks. If Chaliax had only half its current people, for example, Keltham might only add around half as much value. For even smaller subsets of Chaliax, product might fall superlinearly. Keltham couldn't necessarily accomplish one twenty millionth as much with a single Chalaxian. It adds up to somewhat less than half of his marginal product when added to all of Chaliax, probably. Yes, this is a very simple answer to be produced by all that logic. But the point is that Keltham knows why that is the fair answer, and what he ought to do if he gets offered less. Keltham doesn't spell out this part explicitly, or say that he was willing to accept Chelyax's opening offer taken at face value, and indeed would have compromised on substantially less had it been necessary. Chelyax mentioned difficulties in accurately measuring the gains to the country, and may intend to offer a measuring methodology expected to be an underestimate of the real value. Or it could be that Chelyax is thinking the split is about direct profits from project sales, where Chelish consumers are capturing much more value than the sale price of the products, the consumer surplus. Also, Keltham might find there's weird terms or conditions in there, in which case he wants to get the highest initial offer on hand so he can burn percentage points as bargaining power to iron out the terms and conditions. He can always hand back any excessively generous jelly chips that are still left at the end of that. Sopthelim, out of equilibrium, Yarwain. Somewhere in a place that is not this place, so far away that there is no distance and no time between here and there, a former airplane passenger named Thelim 
reads how Earth economists have tried to analyze the ultimatum game played by splitting dollar ten. Earth's economists have concluded that it is irrational to refuse a dollar nine, dollar one split, since it leaves you dollar one worse off. They note that human subjects seem to be irrational by occasionally refusing offers below dollar five, with increasingly great probability as the offer drops. Perhaps it is meta-rational to develop a reputation for acting irrationally, since it causes people to make you bigger offers if they know you'll irrationally refuse smaller ones. For some reason, they don't continue on to ask why not develop an irrational reputation for refusing all offers below $9 instead of $5. Thelum swiftly infers that Earth's moon prevents its inhabitants from thinking clearly about negotiation. She's mistaken. It's kind of a long story. Sometime even later, Thelum is going to conclude that maybe it's not the moon. She will then wonder if there's any way to explain to Earth economists how the absolute basics of negotiation work in coherent decision systems, e.g. those consistent under reflection, in the presence of correlated agents and or models of agents, or even minimally, get them interested in what sort of irrational behavior rational agents want to have reputations for having and if there's any systematic structure in there that might possibly be interesting. It turns out that Earth economists are locked into powerful incentive structures of status and shame, which prevent them from discussing the economic work of anybody who doesn't get their paper into a journal. The journals are locked into very powerful incentive structures that prevent them from accepting papers unless they're written in a very weird earth way that Thelum can't manage to imitate. And also, Thelum hasn't gotten tenure at a prestigious university, which means they'll probably reject the paper anyways. Thelum asks if she can just rent temporary tenure and buy somebody else's work to write the paper, and gets approximately the same reaction as if she asked for roasted children recipes. The system expects knowledge to be contributed to it only by people who have undergone painful trials to prove themselves worthy. If you haven't proven yourself worthy in that way, the system doesn't want your knowledge even for free, because if the system acknowledged your contribution, it cannot manage not to give you status, even if you offer to sign a form relinquishing it, and it would be bad and unfair for anyone to get that status without undergoing the pains and trials that others had to pay to get it. She went and talked about logical decision theory online before she'd realized the full depth of this problem, and now nobody else can benefit from writing it up, because it would be her idea and she would get the status for it, and she's not allowed to have that status. Furthermore, nobody else would put in the huge effort to push forward the idea if she'll capture their pay in status. It does have to be a huge effort. The system is set up to provide resistance to ideas and disincentivize people who quietly agreed with those ideas from advocating them until that resistance is overcome. This ensures that pushing any major idea takes a huge effort that the idea owner has to put in themselves so that nobody will be rewarded with status unless they have dedicated several years to pushing an idea through a required initial ordeal before anyone with existing status is allowed to help thereby proving themselves admirable enough and dedicated enough to have as much status as would come from contributing a major idea. 
To suggest that the system should work in any different way is an obvious plot to steal status that is only deserved by virtuous people who work hard, play by the proper rules, and don't try to cheat by doing anything with less effort than it's supposed to take. Thelem could maybe solve this problem if she put around five years of her life into taking the knowledge and putting it into a form where the system thinks it's allowed to ever look at it or talk about it without that being shameful. But Earth has problems that are plausibly more important than their entire field of economics, being firmly convinced that a particular set of crazy behaviors are rational, and that healthy, pro-social, equilibrium-solvable behaviors are irrational. She ends up writing a handful of blog posts about it, tossing mentions of it into a couple of stories she writes on the side, and otherwise leaving Earth to its fate there. Earth has rather a lot of awful fates going on simultaneously, and that one is not literally their most important problem. This, however, is not her story. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.